It's Wednesday again, and we are in the book of James, and we're going to start reading, uh, I think we're at 16, verse 16 of the first chapter. And last time, last week we were talking about how uh, lust, conceiving, and bringing forth sin, and then sin, when it is finished, bringeth, bringeth forth death. Now there is a... Uh, coming together of lust and temptation. And when those things come together, something is conceived and it brings forth baby sin. Now, uh, what do you have to do when this baby shows up? You've got to feed it and it just grows. <laughs> it don't stay a baby. I think we went over that pretty good last week. You know, what starts out as just a little sin, it grows. It grows and grows, and finally it kills you. And uh, that's the second death. Uh, 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, we, I read this verse not that long ago when I was talking about that famous speech that Benjamin Franklin did. And as we went through that speech, it wasn't that long ago we did it. I guess that was a 4th of July uh, message. And that was one of the things that he quoted was right here. And we're going to, I'm going to go back through all of this. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to get into each one of these things. 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and that's just a word for overflowing of, of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. This is hard for me to just keep reading this. But they, uh, really think about these, these words that we're seeing, we're hearing, we're seeing them. Engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer, hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, so just think of, think of uh, someone looking in a mirror and seeing that they, they need to comb their hair and wash their face, but yet they don't do anything about it. They just walk off. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So basically... When you look into the word of truth, the word of God, that engrafted word that is able to save your soul, when you look into it, you read it, you hear it, 
you hear it read, you hear it preached, you see it for yourself when you read your Bible, it is a mirror. It shows you what you need to change in your life. You see what's messy. When you look in a mirror and you see that the hair is out of place, you comb it, put it in place. When you look into the Bible, it's like a mirror. You're looking at it, it you're seeing yourself in it, and you either can do the change or just go about your way and be only hearers of it and not doers of it. But whoso looketh, looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, remember that, forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in, de in his deed. If any man belong... If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, there's a lot of, again... Proverbs that you can get out of this. There is a whole lot of the Sermon on the Mount that you can see in this. And just to give you some examples of, I wrote down some, uh, just from the Father of Lights, I wrote down Psalm 119. I was just talking about reading that just, just the other day. That is a long psalm to read, but it's awesome. And when you get all the way over to verse 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So I thought of that when I saw, uh, when I was reading Father of Lights. And just remember that, un that unvariableness there in 17, talking about the Father of Lights and neither shadow of turning. It's not, the sun gives light, but there's a shadow. But the light of God, it shines from every direction. There would be no shadows. And it does. It is a, the Word of God is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And then verse 19, it talks about being swift to hear and slow to speak. <clears throat> Today's is the 10th, right? Today the 10th? So, I read Proverbs 10 today. So, Proverbs 10, 19 says, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, or in a, in another way of saying it is, sin is not lacking. So, basically, you, you say a whole lot of words, sin is not lacking, but he that reframeth his lips is wise. Proverbs 13, 3. He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life, but he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. And then the slow to wrath part of that, of verse 19, uh, you look at Proverbs 16, 32, He that is slow anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. I've got my John Phillips commentary, and I was reading through it, 
and I'm going to, I'm going to use it tonight. Starting with uh, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Anything that is good in us comes from God. He gives only good gifts. The Lord introduced this subject in the Sermon on the Mount. What man is there of you whom his son asks bread, will he give, give him a stone? Right? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Matthew 7, 7 through, uh, 9 through 11. You know, we get, uh, you, you hear the phrase uh, or, the, or the comment that we are, we, there's nothing good in us, we can do no good, we're totally depraved. But right here it says, even though we're evil, I mean, that's a true statement that we can't, re- we can't do anything in ourselves that is really considered good. But then Jesus says, you know how to give good gifts to your children. So we as people, because we've been brought up with godly principles, we're good on a worldly level. And if you don't have the Bible and you don't have a good upbringing in godly things, you will be on the lower end of that, you're going to be bad. You're going to be more evil. We're all evil, but there's going to be some that are going to be worse than others. And the danger is that <clears throat> there's a danger on each end because if you, you get into sin and that sin develops and grows and it gets worse and worse, then you can become hard of heart and be lost. You know, there's a, there is a... Uh, a point of no return. You can get to a certain point in your sinful life that you just pass a point of no return. I think it was Adrian Rogers that was talking about on the Niagara River, there's a sign that says the point of no return. And once you get past that, you're going over. And he said, you know, we we should be thinking that way, that we could actually get to the point of no return and we're done for. And we have to warn people that they, that, so they won't go past that. And then on the other side of that is, you could be so good in the eyes of people that you think you're good enough to be saved and totally miss it as well. Perhaps, I'm, reading, I'm uh, reading from John Phillips again. Perhaps the Lord had in mind his own temptation experience in the wilderness. After a 40-day fast... When he was famished and weak with hunger, Satan came and offered him a stone along with the suggestion that he exercise, listen to this, to exercise his deity to take care of the needs of his humanity. That's pretty cool. Jesus knew that. At that moment, it was the good and acceptable and perfect will for him that he be hungry. And he quoted the word of God to the devil to prove it. God gives only good gifts. All that is good in our lives comes from God. God is good, and He alone is absolutely good. 
Far from being the source of temptation to do evil, God is the source of all that is good. That's very important that we remember that God gives good gifts. He doesn't make the bad things that happen happen. Satan is out there doing those things. We do it to ourselves. It's, it's us and Satan and all of his fallen angels. They're doing all those works. All right, God is unchallengeable. He is the Father of lights. He is unchangeable, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God's first work in creation was to command the light to shine out of darkness. Light be, he said, and light was. Later he commanded the sun, the moon, and stars to shed their light upon the earth. Fallen man, in his folly, soon forgot the one, the one, from whom all light comes, the Father of lights, and substituted the sun, the moon, and the stars themselves as objects of worship. In Egypt, for the reigning Pharaoh was believed to be the son of the sun that we see up in the sky. <clears throat> the incarnation of Ra, the sun god. The Babylonians invented astrology and the worship of the stars. Abraham himself came from Ur, a Chaldean center of moon worship, otherwise known as lunatics. The great stars that burn and blaze by the countless billions in the sky are merely the handmaidens of the living God. David knew, he sang, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So the stars speak, and that, you find that in Psalm 19. The starry heavens have well been called God's oldest testament. God bears witness to himself. With him is no variableness, James says. The Greek word tells the, us that with God there is not the slightest variation. In contrast with the sun, so to the, to the eye, you can eventually, you, you know that the sun is moving, but, but in God there is no variableness. There is no changing. With God, furthermore, there is neither shadow of turning. The reference here might be, I kind of explained that a little while ago, that uh, there's not going to be any shadows with God. Here's a proverb. The wise man of old declared, The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Proverbs 4, 18. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. James now gives his version of the new birth. Now this is uh, verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. You see that in 18? The word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The will of God takes us back to a dateless, timeless past when the members of the Godhead decided to act in creation. The word of God is our current point of reference 
the instrument of the Holy Spirit in revelation and regeneration. The wisdom of God embraces His future power in exhibiting us as the firstfruits of His creatures. People have raised all kinds of difficulties regarding the sovereignty of God as related to the will of man. I've been talking about that, that, that lately, uh, trying to figure out how do we deal with God's sovereignty and the free will of man. <clears throat> I mean, I've got friends who are very much into the sovereignty of God, and you know, we're, we're likely to have arguments. Because I, as I'm reading James, and I, I'm seeing how important it is to be a doer of the Word, that's something we have to do. When you think of, think of, the, as you go through the Bible and the stories of the Bible, Joshua is outside looking probably out toward Jericho, trying to figure out how are we going to take this place. And he's a military guy, and he's probably thinking of all the right things you're, you should do and plan for. And all of a sudden, there's somebody standing over there with a sword drawn, and he sees him, he draws his sword, he's ready to fight, and he said, are you for us or are you for them? And the answer was no. <laughs> uh, and then he explains that he was the captain of the Lord's army, the host of the, uh, of the Lord. And Joshua falls down, and he's worshiping him. So that was Jesus. Because if it was just an angel, the angel would have said, no, no, don't worship me but he allowed the worship to happen. So God is neither on your side or their side. You, you, you have to be on God's side. He's not on your side or their side. He's waiting to see if you're on his side. And the Lord tells Joshua that the city of Jericho has been delivered to them. That's... The, it's okay, it's, it's yours. And did Joshua just go and sit down and wait for the city to be his? God told him how he had to do it. But he'd already said, it's yours. Now that's the sovereignty of God. Joshua, he either is just going to sit back and say, oh well, God's sovereign, if he says it's ours, it's going to be ours, and I don't have to do a thing. Or he's going to go and tell all the people this really crazy plan. But he knows it's from God, and he heard from God, and even though it sounds ridiculous, he goes back and he's, he's with all of his military advisors, and he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. For every day, we're going to walk around once for six days, and then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around seven times, and all the trumpets have to do their thing. Everybody's about to be quiet throughout the whole process until the very end, and everybody's going to shout with a loud voice, and the walls are just going to fall down. You have to be very confident in what you believe and, and very confident in the Word of God to say things like that. Not only did He tell them what they needed to do, what they had to do, they actually did it. Every day, they walked around that big, huge city one time, and then they left. And all the people in Jericho, 
I don't know what they were thinking. I just know that Rahab was there. <clears throat> She's hung this scarlet uh, cord out the window. She knows what's going on. She's got more faith than the nation of Israel. And that's another thing. You, you got election. The, the elect people of God was the nation of Israel. So does that mean no one else? Everybody else is left out completely, right? Well, how do you explain Rahab? She wasn't part of the elect nation of Israel, but she hung this cord out. She made a decision to hide the spies when they came in and spied all this out before, and she was saved along with anybody she could convince to be in her house when they attacked. And they were all saved. It sounds like some free will of Rahab and the people that she convinced to stay in the house. God said, only, only Israel's my chosen people. What about Ruth? We just preached a whole message on Ruth this, sun, this past Sunday. She was a Moabite. She was supposed to be left out. She was not part of the chosen people of God. And think about all the people who were the chosen people of God, God's elect that died in the wilderness. <clears throat> I don't mind talking to uh, people who are all about election and predestination and the sovereignty of God. Yeah, let's have a discussion. Let's just talk about the Bible. Ex explain this and explain that. So they actually did... He, Joshua wasn't just a hearer of the word. He put it into practice, and he was a doer of the word. He comprehended what God said. He believed what God said. And how do you know he believed it? Because he actually did it. What, what a lesson we can get out of all those stories. Do we just look at the word, read it, and go, I understand it because I understand English. I under, I, I've looked up these words in the dictionary. I comprehend it. But do you believe it? And the proof that you believe it is you go do it. None of that was out of this uh, commentary, sorry. <laughs> and I, I, I was reading this commentary, and I was just so amazed at, how he worded all this, and I just wanted you to hear it as well. So, the Bible clearly teaches, I'm back in the commentary, that, that God acts sovereignly and, and of his own volition in arranging for the regeneration of certain members of the human race. However, Peter balances the truth by reminding the redeemed that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That's 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says much the same thing in Romans 8, 29, and 30. Uh, so we might never resolve the issues involved in the two great issues of divine sovereignty on the one side and human free will and accountability on the other side. The fact is certain that the initiative in our salvation is God's. So, the way I see it, predestination is God predetermined how it was all going to play out. He gave you a way. He 
planned it from the beginning of time that one day in the future that they would have to be a redeemer for a fallen people. And doesn't he say over in Peter that it's his desire, it's God's desire that not one should perish, that all should believe. That's God's desire. If that's God's desire, does that mean everybody's going to be saved? Well, if He's sovereign, and that's His desire, and you preach sovereignty, that means everybody's got to be saved. If you believe in election, and you're predestined, some are picked to be saved, and others are picked to be lost, then when I open up my Bible and I start reading, I find out that not one is worthy. Everybody's lost. Everybody. Well, if everybody's lost, how can some be saved before? Because if that's true, then the Bible's wrong in saying that everybody's lost. Everybody is lost, and everybody has to make a choice. God did a very brave and dangerous thing a long time ago when He decided that we were not going to be Pinocchios on a string. He could make us be that way and make us do everything right. But He has cut the strings. He's made us into living flesh, not just wooden pieces that have to do a hard heart. He, he gave us a soft heart. He gave us uh, the ability to, to be free. And then, now He knows because you're free to choose to go your way or to go His way. You're free to love Him or to hate Him. You're free. And He knows you love Him when you choose Him because you had just as much opportunity to deny Him. Again, you can't explain it. I can't explain how Jesus was 100% deity and 100% human at the same time. I can't. Satan, we just read it out of this commentary, he said, practice your deity to help with your humanism, your humanity of being hungry. If you're really who you say you are, turn that stone into bread and eat because I know you're hungry. And Jesus said, no, it's, it's meant for me to be hungry right now. And he just answered with the word. You know, people can say to us, well, you've, uh, all these horrible things going on in your life, if God was real, you wouldn't be going through all that. Well, right now, it's, that's His purpose. He's testing me, seeing if I'm true to Him. I'm going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. <clears throat> all right, so 19, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. We, we definitely need that, don't we? All right. James resorts now to another illusion. God's Word is not only a gift, but also a graft. So you'll see the engrafted Word down here in 21. When we accept God's Word at its face value, it will change our conduct and our conversation by changing our character. James says that we should be swift to respond to speaking. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, 
This is a lesson that Peter had to learn on the Mount of Transfiguration. The heavenly vision burst upon his sight, and he caught a glimpse of the Lord in conversation with Moses and Elijah. Then he opened his mouth and blurted out some sheer nonsense. It was too bad that he did not simply listen, because Luke tells us that the two visitors from glory were talking with the Lord about the death that he was soon to accomplish at Calvary. If Peter had listened to that conversation, he might have given us another epistle. He should have been swift to hear, to respond to what was being said in respectful silence and with eager attention. Instead, God himself had to tell Peter to hold his tongue and listen to the Lord. You can see that in Matthew 17, 1-5. Now, uh, something that came to me, those two people that showed up, Moses and Elijah. Why was it those two? On the Mount of Transfiguration. And three of the disciples went up there with Jesus, if I remember correctly. Peter was one of them, probably James and John. Is that right? What's that? Okay. So they're watching, and then Moses and Elijah shows up. And they see Jesus changing. I mean, it, it's just what a sight. But why, why is it that it's Moses and Elijah? Moses would represent all of the saints who had died before. Elijah would represent those who are part of the church that would be taken out before they saw death. It's just what I think. I've, heard somebody, I've read it from somebody. It's not my original thought, that's for sure. But Elijah was taken out. He, he was like Enoch. He was, he, he didn't, Elijah didn't die. He was taken out in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. He went into heaven. I think that's why those two were there. They represented two different types of people from years gone by and us who will be taken out if we live long enough to see the return. The art of listening is one that we all need to acquire. The Lord Jesus often used this expression. Now, this is pretty cool. I'm talking about listening and hearing, so listen and hear this. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. These words are his alone. Jesus alone said, the, said that in the Bible. No mortal man ever used them. He, spoke with the, he alone spoke with the authority of God. Now, all right, while Jesus was on this earth, how many times did he say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear? When he was on this earth, how many times did he say that? Guess it'll be right. Think about how many times he could have said it. Think. What's the most significant number in Scripture? Seven. He said it seven times while he was on the earth. Now, uh, when did I, a couple Sundays ago, we went through the churches, uh, the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor. Okay, so in Revelation, which, which is when Jesus is in heaven, and he speaks to those seven churches, at the end of each one of those, he who hath an ear to hear, 
let him hear. So how many times was it said there? Seven. And then he says it one more time later in Revelation, in Revelation 13, 9. So he says it seven times when he's on the earth, all in the uh, Gospels. And then he says it seven times about the seven churches, but total of eight times new beginnings. So seven, spiritual, heavenly perfection. Then the number eight is something new is going to happen. For those who have ears to hear, let him hear. Did everybody hear all that? Most of us, back at the commentary, are poor listeners. God speaks, however, to those who have ears to hear. See, that's, an, that's another thing. We have to make that happen. Or you can just become one of those and just blame everything on God. Remember Samuel when he was a little boy? God spoke to him, and he thought it was Eli. And he ran over and said, yeah, what? And he's like, I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. So he went back to bed. And uh, it happened three times. That's another very significant number. So you could have guessed that. You could have guessed three. That would have been a good guess. When I ask what, how many times, just say three or seven, and you'll probably be right. So after the third time, Eli is like, wait a minute. God must be speaking to this boy. So he told him, look, you go back to bed, and if you hear it again, just say to God, I can hear, your servant hears you, speak to me. And that's what happened. But we have to know that God is speaking to us, and we have to be willing to, or, you know, we have to be like Eli. We have to tell people, God is speaking to you through his word. Listen to it. Um, people need to understand that God wants to speak to them. If we are to be swift to respond to the speaking by cultivating the habit of being a good listener, we are also to be slow to resort to speaking. James sets forth two principles. The first principle is be slow to speak. One of the things that uh, aggravated Job was the eagerness with which his friends tore into him with their various views about what had happened to him. Indeed, Job was so provoked by uh, Zophar's first speech that he turned on him and said, Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. So basically what Job was saying is if you would keep your mouth shut, somebody might make a mistake and think you were wise. Good advice, isn't it? <laughs> Job could have said much the same of all his wordy friends. They all spoke out of ignorance. So we need to have some silence about us. The Lord himself might have spoken to Pilate. You think about all the things that Jesus could have said to Pilate. This is, this is good here. He could have spoken the way Pilate spoke and could have opened up his eyes. Uh, Jesus might have told him that in his kingdom, he was served by ministers who were a flaming fire. He might have told him of 
legion upon legion of mighty angels standing with swords already drawn in the unseen world. He might have told him of a throne high and lifted up beyond a billion galaxies in space. He might have answered Pilate's cynical question, what is truth, by the exposition of all the follies of the philosophers of Athens and Rome. But he did nothing of the kind. For the most part, he said nothing. And that terrible silence spoke more loudly to Pilate than any words. The reason the Lord was so silent was simple. He had nothing to say. Pilate knew perfectly well the innocence. He knew fully the motives and the malice of the Sanhedrin, and he knew where his duty lay. That was all there was to it. Pilate had never before met a prisoner who defended himself so brilliantly by saying little or nothing at all. Think about that. Think about Jesus had every right to defend himself because he was falsely accused. He had every right, and no one would blame him if he said, look, that guy's making that up and just fought really hard for his innocence because he was innocent. But think about what Barabbas would have been like. What, think about anybody else who were sentenced to die on a cross and how they would be crying. Even if they deserved to go to the cross, they would have said everything they could say to try to get out of it. Jesus, the opposite. He was innocent, and he said nothing to keep himself from going there. That had to have spoke volumes to Pilate. Wow. Wow. When James says, back to the commentary, be slow to speak, he means perhaps that we would do well to think twice before we speak. You know, I, t I talked about this the other day, this next little uh, thing here about David and Nathan. You know, David had committed that horrible sin with Bathsheba. David had wives, Urias had one wife. David saw Bathsheba, Urias' wife, and he wanted her too. And being the king with great influence, he got what he wanted. She became pregnant. He is feeling guilty for what has happened. He wants to hide the sin by more sin, right? So he's going to lie about it. He's going to get Urias to come home to be with his wife so Urias would think that it's his child. Urias was a man of honor. His men couldn't come home to be with their wives, so he didn't think it was right for him to be with his wife, and he stayed away from her. And David's like, oh, why does he have to be such a good person? So David wrote his death sentence, sealed it, handed it to him. Urias carried his own death sentence to the battlefield, and the person in charge of the battle, okay, put him out front, and then everybody draw back. Urias dies on the battlefield. David ends up marrying Bathsheba, takes, takes her, and he just goes on about his business. He doesn't see the, the terribleness of what he had done. And Nathan comes to him, and Nathan said, there's a, there's a man who has all kinds of lambs, all kinds of sheep. And then there's this family who had one little sheep, one little lamb, and it was like their pet lamb. 
it, it was in their house with them, and they, they cared for it, and it ate, ate at their table, and, and it was just so special to them. And the man who had many lambs, he didn't want to kill any of his lambs. He had a guest that came, and he wanted to kill a lamb for, for this guest, but he went to the family that only had that one little lamb, and he took that one little lamb from them and, and, and cooked it and, and served it to his guest. And David got irate, very, very angry, and he said, he, he wrote it down in here, what, he, what David said. He exploded when he, had sh- when he should have been slow to speak. His, his anger was greatly kindled, and the Holy uh, let's see, as, and then David said, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, he blurted out, and in so doing he condemned himself. That's what David, he was so angry that he wanted that man killed. He should die for this. He should repay fourfold. And Nathan's standing there listening to everything he's saying. And Nathan said, thou art the man. And David's like, that was a story. It was a beautiful word picture. And, And he knew that David grew up tending to these little sheep and how he had to have some sheep, little lambs, that he cared for and knew that that would really touch his heart, that whole story of that. But what he didn't realize is he had become that. He took another man's wife when he had plenty of wives and he did a terrible thing and now he just pronounced this death sentence. The, the sentence that he wanted, it was, he, it was for him now. And he saw it right away. Any other way, if anybody would have come to David any other way, he would have just ignored it. It would not have penetrated his head. It would have not, not have touched his heart. But Nathan, the man of God, did it perfectly so that David would want revenge and the proper punishment for what had been done. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. So we need to be careful when we pronounce judgment on others. We need to be very careful. Be slow to speak. Be very quick to hear. Be a people that listen to the Word of God. Receive, this is verse 21, receive the end of it, with meekness the engrafted Word, which is able to save your souls. That engrafted word, that, that, that is, it shows a plant that you can graft a branch into where that becomes part of the plant. The word of God needs to be, when people think of you, they need to think of you carrying a Bible. It needs to be so part of you that when they see you, they see the word of God. It's just been engrafted into you. Now, Last night at our council meeting, we were talking about that. Be, just knowing the word so well that you speak it, it's just part of who you are. And that's, that's part of this engrafted word, that you read it and meditate on it and study it so much that when certain things in life pop up, you are able to quote scripture. You're able to, when you have a chance to lose your temper, that... This comes to your mind right here, and you are slow to wrath. When you want to 
somebody says something they shouldn't have said, and you're, you just want to bite back, and you you slow to speak, and you don't do it. Because if you were to act out in wrath, uh, 20 says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You make God look bad when you are a person who loses your temper. You make God look bad. The righteousness of God, you are being a very poor witness when you are not slow to wrath. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That's like an overflowing of bad. We are to just lay it aside. Now, now if you are believing the word, you need to be a person who can just say, I'm, I'm putting this aside. I'm laying it to the side. Receive the meekness of... With meekness, see that word meekness, that's Sermon on the Mount speak. The engrafted word, it's able to save your souls. This word of God, again, believing is critical, but what are you believing? You've got to know the word. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And we've already talked about the uh, looking in a mirror. That's what the Word of God is. It's a mirror. When we read it, we see our faults. We see where our shortcomings are, and we see what we need to do to change it. And it's up us to trust and obey. Trust what it says. Obey what it says. Don't just read it and then go on and be the same way you were. Because you can be that way. You can read the Word just out of just getting facts. You can read the Word just for any reason. I mean, there's so many different reasons why people get into the Word. I mean, there's people get, get into the Word just so they can uh, try to prove it wrong. We've, we've heard those stories. We, we, we see people just trying to argue a doctrine. They'll get into the Word just for that purpose, just to argue a doctrine. A doctrine. So we need to get into the Word for the purpose of understanding that we, it will change us and can even save our souls. But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Forgetful. Don't be forgetful. Uh, remember what you read. Remember the lessons God has put you through. Next time we might talk a little bit about John Newton. Who was John Newton? Who, what, did he, what song did he write? What hymn did he write? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. This, I mean, saved a wretch like me. All right, John Newton, we're, we'll try to remember, remind me next week, uh, when we get back into James, we'll fit, we got a couple more verses uh, to read, and that can get kind of lengthy when we start talking about the tongue. So I'm going to save that for next week. We're out of time this week. Thank you all for being here. Now we're going to, let's pray and uh, just remember that we need to go to 
God. Jesus has made a way for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us can go to the throne of grace. Remember that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the people that are here tonight. Father, we thank you for making a way for us. Father, we know that you had us in mind so, so many years ago, before you even created this earth that we're standing on. You had us in mind. And Father, you made a way. And Father, I pray that each and every one of us would want to know your word, want to know your holy scriptures to where we would get the guidance that we need for what we need to change about ourselves, what we need to believe, and what we need to look to for our salvation. And Father, we see Jesus on the cross. We see him going to that place to pay for our sins and for, for our transgressions, Father, that we can look to him and Father, that just that look, that simple act of looking to Him and we can be saved. But Father, I pray that we would be a people who would watch Him to look and to just gaze at Your Word and what Christ is doing for us now and that we would be washed with the Word. Father, that the Holy Spirit that was sent would be inside of us and guiding our ways. And Father, that we would be changed to be more like Jesus as we live through this life while we're waiting for you to return to take us home. And Father, we are here so that we can have relationship with you and that we can go and minister to those who need to have a relationship with you. Father, give us the power to do so. Give us the courage, the strength. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.